With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're with Peter Drummy, Chief Reference Librarian, the Massachusetts Historical Society. And being a librarian may not be what you think. We're going to start out with the conversation we were having eight seconds ago before we came on. It's pretty interesting. And I just happened to ask him, I said, Peter, you don't happen to need any librarians. And he said, probably not really. I said, I have a friend who's a librarian. And it's pretty surprising to me uh, what librarians do. They're really an interface with the, the people of the community. And it's really a service, much more than people realize. And you said, as a matter of fact, I, when I, I went to school, it was called library service. Yes. Yeah, so, well, I went to the, the first school at uh, library school founded in the United States uh, at Columbia University. And this is when they were kind of inventing the field. The person who was the head of it was- Ben Franklin. No, Melville Dewey okay. of Dewey oh. Decimal System. Wow, all right. And, and so, but but his he named the school the School of Library Service, and I think that's in. Now we talk about library science and information science, but I I think this is a helping profession. You're there to be of assistance, so it's it's not simply knowing about um, uh, the organization, a description of the materials in the library, but. Um, meeting people face to face, usually yep. not always, because there's things on the phone and on the computer. But, but most of this is interaction with people directly, and figuring out how to get them to or get them the information they need. So you are here tonight to talk about something we seldom talk about. We talk about the revolution all the time, the founding fathers all the time, but we haven't talked much about what happened the next day, or the next month, the next year, what happened right after the. Revolution, and not too long after the revolution, uh, you, we get into the the trade, China-Boston trade. Why, and how long? How long afterwards, and why? Well, let's just go back one step okay. and remind people that here we know about the Boston Tea Party. Mm -hmm. Well, the tea that was thrown into the harbor um, on December sixteenth, seventeen seventy-three, was brought um, here to Boston by the. Um, the British East India Company, but it was brought from China. This all the tea was coming from there, and this this is um, uh, uh, until the American Revolution, until we're no longer a colony. Everything we get from the Far East, uh, from India and from China, tea essentially, but also, I mean, when we think of sitting down for dinner, we we eat it off. Porcelain, but right. we call that China, right? Because that's, right. that's where it first came from. All this elegant, artistic, wonderful material, um, um, and uh, but but of all these things, tea is the most important, and that takes over the world and is very important here in colonial America. That's why making this this destruction of tea is so symbolically important. And with the revolution, we think the revolution is a, a political and military revolution, which it is, but it's also a social revolution. And in some respects, it's a business revolution because we're not a colony anymore. What that brings with it burdens, but it means we as a new nation can go out in the world and find our own way. And people here in Boston weren't the first people from the new United States to sail to uh, China that uh, happened from New York in the mid 1780s. So only really a couple of years after the end, the peace that ended the American Revolution, the first voyages, and then in 1787 the first voyage from Boston. So the British East, East India Company was sort of like the Amazon on the block. They were the, the monster that had to be dealt with. It must have been yes. tough to compete with them. That they were they were a company so big that in India, and this developed over time, they were founded about the same time that people came to New England. So in, early in the 17th century, as people were coming here to Plymouth and then to Massachusetts Bay and to Virginia, that's exactly when they were going to the east. Now they were first going looking for 
um, uh, spices going to the East Indies and going on to China, but essentially started building up this base in India, and they had a monopoly. Uh, they, they controlled all the trade through the British Empire, went through that company, so that this company, as it penetrated into India, it had, as I say, it had its own government, it had its own army, it had its own ships. It was essentially was like— Was the de facto government of India? Yes, until the, until the middle of the 19th century, until the 1850s, it was the de facto government of India. And you mentioned earlier before the show that it was a situation of too big to fail. Yes. In fact, that's the, the story behind the Boston Tea Party, that the, the tea br being brought here was being brought here to bail out the um, uh, British East India Company. This was we'll essentially most of most uh, American colonists were drinking smuggled tea brought um, by the Dutch or the French to their islands in the West Indies and then here to North America going around paying taxes on this tea. The uh, British, um, to, um, to help out the uh, East India Company that had was under a lot of financial stress, but very important for taxes in England, they decided they would um, uh, uh, eliminate some of the taxes, make the tea that the East – have the East India Company bring the tea directly to America and undercut the smugglers. Well, the smugglers were um, us. They were the businessmen in Boston and so – and elsewhere in America. John, like John Hancock? John Hancock. I mean uh, lots of people you know, getting around, paying taxes. So this was both – nobody wanted to pay the taxes, but it also was important not to let a monopoly come in and control the business. This would – this would – this was the – it was you know, the analogy of these big companies. This was the big company that was going to come in and crush all the local businessmen whether they were operating within or outside the law. So, so this is what – so after the revolution, everybody still wants to drink tea, um, but we have to – and wants these things to come from China, but we have to go and get them on our own there. And then the problem is there's almost nothing that we have here that people – I was going to ask, what would, we, what would we trade? Tobacco? <laughs> Well, they, there was tobacco being grown along the way. It didn't have to come from they, – one of the things they, they, they knew that um, uh, uh, um, people had there – was, there was some contact with um, China, so the people had some idea. The, the uh, ginseng was something that they um, uh, collected and uh, shipped to China. There was ginseng in China, but they thought they could sell that. It – uh, they uh, flooded the market very quickly. But you could grow ginseng, and they did grow ginseng here. Yes, I yeah. did not know that. Yeah, and 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 see, that's the interesting thing. They had to sort of search around for bits and pieces. So at first, this was very hard to do. But um, uh, um, uh, Captain Cook, the famous British uh, navigator, had been in the Pacific. Um, an American had been on his ship, and uh, a man from Connecticut named uh, John Ledyard, and Ledyard had been with Cook when he was in the Pacific Northwest, in the Gulf of Alaska, in the Hawaiian Islands, and in China. And he knew there were these uh, wonderful fur-bearing animals, seals and sea otters, on the coast of America, that there were was sandalwood, which was a sought-after product in um, China and Hawaii, and um, – that if they could get those products from the Pacific Northwest and Hawaii onto China, they would have something that they could then uh, swamp. So instead of going around Africa and across the Indian Ocean, the traditional route of the East India Company and American traders when they entered this, Boston men, the Boston first Boston voyage, which is in 1787, sailed around South America to the Pacific Northwest uh, traded on the coast with the people there, went on to Hawaii, and then on to uh, the the one place that people from outside could go could trade with and enter China was on the Pearl River in southern China, what we call now Guangzhou. They called Canton, and that and the the Chinese had set up this strict control where that was the only place where businessmen from outside really could deal. Yeah, it, they were very concerned about having um, outside influences 
enter into China. So they kept people essentially in this one controlled place. Interesting. Um, they, and it was called the Canton system. Oh, um, I was going to ask you what the Canton system was. Which was this. You these, had to go to Canton. You had to go to Canton. It's actually to a little port just south of this already big city. Um, and um, and essentially a f- you had a few months each year where you could come with your materials. You had, they called them factories, but they were essentially warehouses and offices and set up there. And you could only tr- trade with approved Chinese merchants um, there. So this was a system that was incredibly corrupt in the sense that everybody was getting bribed to deal with each other. The the Chinese merchants were buying this permission to trade with Westerners, so they had to turn the expenses around quickly. So they had to pass the So everybody was gouging everybody yeah. else. But this was such a good business that all of this um under the table dealing could could um it was still worth it. It's still worth doing it. Yes. You can see, after you described they had to go around South America, it, you can see how important a Northwest Passage would be so yes. they could skip yeah. that. Exactly. Wow. Talking about China trade and the early stages of it and why it started and what was traded, and we, we wondered, of course, what would we have that China would want? And furs was a thing. But before we figured that out, there needed to be some sort of currency or medium what would that? What what was that? What would China accept? What would we accept? Well, China. The only thing people in China wanted was silver. They, I, I think, they would have uh, uh, taken copper too. Those are the two currencies within China. Was there a Mater- use an industrial use for silver and copper over there, or was it? Yeah, just there, there was, but it, but it's mostly it's mostly Exchange. the, the yeah, uh, currency. Yeah. And in fact, um, at, at this time. China was called the graveyard of silver because silver came from everywhere in the world to pay for the things that people wanted every, from everywhere else and never left China. So this was this drain on all the other countries um, in the world to have all of this uh, um, valuable currency going in just one direction. It's not a real So yeah, they, they had huge stores of, of silver. Yes, that's did they, right. Did they ever offload that? Well, I mean, China is so much bigger than uh, it's both the biggest country in the world in terms of population, already has a population of hundreds of millions. When the United States had a population, say, after the revolution, going towards 3 million, China had a population maybe of 300 million. Um, So it had already started this very rapid. So China was today, uh, it was then like we are today. We have about that. 350 million. Yeah, that's right. They had a they had a population essentially what we have today. There also were um, uh, not necessarily individual peasants, but cumulatively the wealthiest place in the world. So so this is one thing that we have this image of China from say the 20th century, the at the building up of China to the present. But China was, uh, I mean, it called itself the Middle Kingdom, that it was the center of the world. And uh, most people understood that. They, it was exotic, but really important for um, uh, trade and business, except that this trade was this uh, one directional one. So Americans, and um, there I think all credit to the people here, kind of figured this out, something to bring there that people wanted. And that was the um, uh, fur-bearing animals, seals and sea otters, the pelts of those animals from the Gulf of Alaska and the Pacific Northwest. About 1784. That's the Samuel Shaw and the China is the Empress of China. Empress of China. That's a key story, correct? Yes, that's the first American flag ship to, to um, sail in the China trade. Now that ship sails from New York and follows the traditional route of going around Africa across the Indian Ocean as the East India ships would have gone. But it's still important in, um, in um, going there. There they're just bringing a hodgepodge of materials with them. You know that um, they're, they're just guessing what might be valuable. So they just have all sorts of things. So it's while they are able to exchange some of those materials, um, the goods they're carrying, mostly it's just paying for things. Question, armaments. 
Was China more advanced than we were? Could, could gun rifles have been a thing for us to trade them, or do they already have better weapons than we did? No, there is a really interesting thing. Being um, a, a country that had sort of closed itself off from the outside world, um, and it had a large military force um, and, a, uh, a, and a navy, but these were for control of within the borders of China rather than going out in the world. So that's not maybe at the time of the revolution, but the Industrial Revolution turned this upside down. It was the modern weapons of the 19th century and steamships and things like that. The, the, the Western revolution and technology changed this balance of power. Right, so they, we had lots of stuff they wanted at that point. Yes, that's right. That's, uh, th this is what's interesting about the story is it's all in one direction and then um, you blink your eyes and it's kind of turned exactly opposite. All thanks to, not all thanks to Eli Whitney, but that, that sort of thing, that, yeah. that's, that small regular guy was way more pivotal than I realized back in grade school when I well, learned about yeah, it. Yeah, but, but also like the, the, not just the steam engine, but being able to put the steam engine to productive use. So um, uh, later on, as we'll talk about when there was uh, essentially war fought over whether Westerners could enter and trade in China, the Opium War in the 1840s. Well, um, this is fighting, you know, Southern China is literally at the other end of the world from where we are, but with um, steamships, don't have to wait till this wind's blowing favorable direction. Numbers don't count as much. The weapons are not ultra modern, but they're a whole generation ahead of what the weapons that um, the Chinese have. The War of 1812, how does that figure? Well, this means that for Americans, and say from 1784 through the War of 1812, there are probably about 300 voyages by um, American ships uh, to China. Um, uh, and um, the, now the British have the most powerful navy in the world. So in the War of 1812, if you're a, if you're a China trader or you're trading in India, um, if you're out, if you're in a port, in India, um, which isn't all controlled by the British yet, or in China, you just have to wait, stay and wait for the war to be over. There's no safe way to get back. So there are people who sail away in like in 1812, and they really can't make a return voyage till 1815 um, because of the war. So that's a break in, the, in this trade, and it's damaging um, uh, to the American business model. But they recover after after the war. So the U.S. Navy, was that created primarily to defend the country or to defend shipping? It's, um, it's, de it's, it's develops to defend shipping, but it can't, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, um, it, it can't really protect them all the over that. Yeah, right. it, it's, it's not until well into the 19th century that the U.S. Navy has ships in eastern seas, you know, off of China. That's, probably the 1840s and 50s before there's a real U.S. presence there. What it can do is protect American ships nearer at hand in the West Indies and in the Mediterranean. That's where the Navy's first um, involved. Speaking of that, the circumnavigation of the USS Constitution happened in like 1850-ish? A, a little, I think, yeah, in that period. it's, uh, so, it's Was that related to trade in any way? Because I know that they were, they just were trying... There was a guy that said, I'll fix it up. They said, go ahead. We'll figure out something to do with it. Did, yeah. the, did the use they came up with have anything to do with trade? Yes. This is, this is, um, this is, it is an explicitly suppression of piracy. But with all this trade going on in that part of the world, it, the, these are um, ocean waters full of pirates. So this is not, the Constitution is too large and probably too old by then to run down um, little pirate ships. Nevertheless, it can go to ports and kind of overawe the local people in power. It's impressive. Impressive. So it wasn't so much is stopping piracy directly, but showing the flag and- uh, Projecting and showing power? It. Yeah, yeah, exactly so right. And having a U.S. presence places um, and some interesting places. Show the flag, that must have been a heck of a trip to be on. 
Yeah, it's sort of like, a, and the other thing is, this is a time when, and we're talking about young men because that's who served on ships. But we're talking about people who sailed away for years. The first voyage from Boston in the China trade leaves in September of 1787, returns in August of 1790. Wow. Let's take a break <coughs> and find out more about the pirates involved here. It was a real thing, real, real bad pirates coming up on WBZ Boston's News Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Peter Drummy is our, our guest chief reference librarian over at uh, Massachusetts Historical Society. And we're talking, well, now we're talking pirates. It's about right after, right after the revolution, what we did. <clears throat> One of those things was, <coughs> excuse me, a trade with China. And one of the problems were pirates. There, there were no, there's no police force out there. It's kind of might makes right out of the high seas, right? Right. And, and some of this can be really interesting. Um, Hong Kong, until it's taken over by the British and developed, is a, it's um, in a strategic place just at the mouth of the Great River in southern China. Um, but um, it, there, you know, is fishing and other things going on there. But this is a base of for pirates. The other thing to remember is um, as the opium trade increased. Um, in the 18th and then in a very substantial way in the 19th century, that's illicit trade too. So the people who are uh, sailing or rowing the fast boat that gets the opium from a, a Western ship on shore, they're the ki same kind of people who would be in other lines of illicit business so as well. So bad people just on different teams. Yeah, that's right. I shouldn't and say bad people, but they're all – they're all people doing different illegal entrepreneurs, stuff. entrepreneurs and without yeah. without yeah. kind of and and in, a, and in 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 countries with arbitrary rules and law so um and in any case so when hong kong develops as uh, um starts developing as a major port i mean the complaints come in ships are more merchant ships are based and coming through um there that Pirates are operating within sight of the port. You know, they're right. so Why bold. Right, sail around way out there and look for them? Just wait here. Yeah, that's right. Or, and especially in the in the islands in the um, uh, in the uh, Southeast Asia, there often are uh, choke points, places that you're going to go and through Straits relatively and things that, like that. So that's where you wait. But there, but this is um, uh, uh, you know authentic bold pirates who. Um, uh, capture ships, loot them, dispose of the crew, the, the, the kind of real <laughs> uh, piracy, which is not, not exclusively in that part of the world, but is, is a reason for um, the United States starting to project naval power there. So what were the real <clears throat> ports that were really, that had a lot of uh, pirates, the real dangerous ports? Well, I, I, the, the ports themselves, not so much, but all of the major places where business was uh, undertaken, Canton, Hong Kong, um, uh, um, off of Singapore, in the, which is already developing um, in the Malay states. So all these places that brought ships there were places that pirates lay in wait. And a lot of these sort of princely states in the islands that now make up Indonesia – um, are places that are, you know, they're they're providing protection for um, people in that line of work. I always think of uh, pirates as being 
kind of Anglo, black beard, and well, there's Jean Le, Jean Lafoot, the barefoot pirate. Jean Lafitte, the barefoot pirate. I can't see why they wouldn't have local Asian pirates, did they? Oh yes, these are all these are all Asian pirates okay. we're talking about. You now, know, were there inter-pirate squabbles? There must have must have been. Oh yes, there's like uh, uh, I mean, uh, th- this is a very big scale problem. So that people, I mean, these are this is organized on. This isn't single ships sailing around necessarily, but in an organized way. It's also the, it's also that sort of um, part of the world where um, things like religion and um, ethnicity play in. You know, you're. I mean, like in all of history, if you're doing this on a in a righteous cause, if you're uh, a Muslim and preying on Christians or vice versa, you know, this seems to give. Um, Reason. The other thing is, um, these many of these merchant ships that sailed from America, sailed from Massachusetts, carried letters of mark. That is, an authority from the government, either the federal government or the state government, to capture pirates or enemy ships if the war was declared. So, the so privateering, which is sort of authorized piracy uh-huh. uh, preying upon um, merchant ships um, some of the ships doing that are merchant so ships themselves. piracy yeah exactly interesting and it expands the reach of your navy by having all those sort of volunteers out there so in the early days we didn't have the manpower or the, the firepower to go over and protect these ports ourselves but the countries the, the, the home country over there, they benefit from the business, didn't they? Do anything to combat piracy that's within sight of their shore? Oh yes, but it's sort of like, um, but but this is um, um, part of the thing is um, China is a large country, a bureaucratic country. Um, you know, by the time you get down to um, where Hong Kong and Canton are, you're sort of a long distance from the center of power. So you might send people off on pirate hunting expeditions. But they're a long way away. Um, all the countries in the world benefited from, we fought them during this period, but benefited from the Royal Navy being the most powerful navy in the world and its presence everywhere in the world. And it really was. Uh, it was already um, had a, an international reach into every so place. That was in a the stabilizing world. effect? That's yeah. So, so even though we were competing with the British in this business, um, uh, and the business aspect of this, we were also, in some respects, coasting along on the protection. We we're a little, they, pi- a little bit of a pilot fish. Yeah, exactly. And 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 there was a little bit of payback because um, uh, the, the famously, in a, a, there were two wars fought over um, uh, the opium trade in the second of these wars, which actually had to do with piracy. Um, uh, whether there was a question. The Chinese had captured what they said was a pirate ship. The British said, no, that's a British flagship. Um, and they had a, essentially it – was, it was the cause of a war in the sense of an excuse to go to war rather than people really fighting over a single ship. So um, the vessels that were chosen for this kind of shipping, what kind of cho- choices did they make? Well, the, as far as armament versus speed, yeah. So, size. so, so, if you think about the first voyage from Boston, two ships went, very small ships, a full-rigged three-masted ship named uh, Columbia, Columbia Rediviva, that is, Columbia reborn or revived, um, and the and Columbia is a symbolic word that's used essentially for America, and it had and if you were going to trade on the coast, which they were going to do in the Pacific, they were planning to do in the Pacific Northwest. If you had two ships, you could sp- spread out over a bigger territory. So they brought essentially a tender, a, a very small um, little ship with them. The Columbia was not a big ship. It was, um, we say, 200 tons. That's not weight. That's a measurement of – but a ship that was, say, 80 feet long, but with three three-masted, full-rigged ship, and then a little sloop called the – um, Washington, that is Lady Washington, that is Martha Washington, uh-huh. the ship's named for. <clears throat> so these two very small ships carrying smaller ship, maybe 15 or 20 people, the larger ship, 
30 or Attempted 40. to go between them? Yes. Yeah. And But the, just these very small ships. Yeah. Now, the ships were reasonably heavily armed um, uh, because there was this feeling that if you're doing business in the, in the Pacific Northwest, um, uh, you would you would be show you would be trading with what might be seen as valuable things. So to come and take them away from you would make for good business there. Right. And and then there's the these are ships that the planned route which they followed, um, at least the Columbia, which um, the little ship the Washington stayed out in Hawaiian Islands, but the Columbia circumnavigated. It came back by way of the uh, Indian Ocean and around Africa. So it's the first ship flying the American flag to circumnavigate. But there would be, you know, we're talking about pirates. There would be dangers along the way almost that entire wow. 42, 42,000 miles. It's so exciting to think of these people on these ships and how the lives we lead are so safe and Boring compared to what that must well, have been. Well, that, but they were then, t they were for people ashore then too. The Columbia gets back after three years out. It really doesn't take three years to get a, a, around the world. For a sailing ship, about a year to go around the world was a reasonably rapid voyage. But they were finding their way and figuring this out. So they were out for three years. They, they the, the, the first voyage wasn't particularly successful because, again, they were figuring out how to do this. But they thought, now we have a plan. They sailed again from Boston six weeks after they came back. Jeez. After three years out. I wonder if this, if sailors like that, they get into port and they get bored in a month. Oh, I, I have to think that. In the, a month. Let's get I, out of here, Bill. I think if you've seen China, if you've seen places in Africa, if you've seen uh, you know tropical islands, maybe Boston isn't quite as impressive anymore. Right. It's tough to keep Sailor Man down on the farm <laughs> once he's seen China. So- Tell me about the Boston men and the significant. Actually, I'll back up. Boston's had a pretty significant uh, impact on the world for a place that's pretty darn small. And the so-called Boston men are an example. Yeah, the the this idea of um, um, I, there there are many examples of this. Another one beside this this idea that what can we bring to um, China that they'll want there? Go out in the world and find it, trade for it, and bring it there. But another one is the you know is from the same exact time is ice trade you know you know you cut blocks of ice off ponds bring them to tropical places including India by the 1830s and you, you essentially make something out of nothing. Were they taking ice right out of Jamaica Pond? Exactly. Because there was a, there was a nice deal they worked it out of Jamaica Pond. That, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that went to like India. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, and 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 out of um, Walden Pond out in Concord. Um, as soon as the train came by, they started cutting because the because Jamaica Pond and Walden Pond are deep ponds, so the the ice back then in the nineteenth century got very thick um, um, in them. And but this but that's a this is like figuring this out, um, unlocking the 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 building the railroads. So, you know, um, not all railroads lead from Boston, but the setting up the railroads across the United States and then down into Mexico. Um, Boston men, Boston companies. Um, so those are examples of that. Um, but in the China trade, they had this idea of this fur trade part brings something valuable that people in China wanted. But in the long run, what turned out to be really important and what um, kind of influenced um, China ever since was um, – uh, was the drug trade, that is, the, the uh, bringing opium to uh, uh, China. The British East India Company bringing opium from India, where high-quality opium was um, uh, um, produced. Americans had been trading for opium in the Mediterranean, to essentially bringing it here to the United States for, for essentially medicinal purposes. Um, but people were... Um, but both in both places, people figured out there was a very large um, 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 demand for opium in China. There was some opium um, produced in China, but essentially bringing it, and this solved this problem of having something valuable to exchange for all these valuable things they so wanted who, from China. Who was the primary producer of opium? And, and the, you mentioned the primary markets, China. 
and some in the U.S. Who was the primary producer? The primary producer was India. Okay. And that was high-quality um, opium. Americans were bringing a lower-quality opium from essentially modern-day Turkey. From the, it was called the Smyrna trade um, in the eastern Mediterranean. And they had been bringing that to the United States. They'd been trading around. There had been opium going overland to China from the Middle East for centuries. But um, what this was is um, – and and – and China was already, as a nation, had already become concerned about this um, growth and the number of people using it, especially when people started smoking it. This is where um, technology and materials go together. That is, the spread of tobacco smoking through the world and the availability of tobacco pipes. Was that? Did we do that? No, the, these things came from the Dutch and the smoking, Portuguese. Uh, to, uh, the uh, tobacco was initially a Dutch? <clears throat> Well, well, the transport of it to China. Okay. Was, well, yeah. So were we the were it the came prime? from here originally. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I, yeah, I it, yeah it came from in that. the Americas originally, but it spread over over the world very okay. quickly. And an, uh, and and the same sort of concern about it as being um, having addictive qualities is not some powerful things like. So this opium. huge trade was all illicit, all illegal, or was it not? Well, it, it, for instance. Um, um, Opium is not illegal in the United States until the early part of the 20th century. This is what makes this complicated. Um, a place like China saw the deleterious effect of this addiction much earlier and uh, tried to prevent it. It also could see where this was coming from. Foreigners were bringing this and extracting all the silver that had been flowing into uh, yeah. China started flowing back hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh -huh. You know, even with all the tea everyone was still drinking, it didn't make up for this enormous amount of opium going in. And this was this was essentially um, uh, um, uh, – uh, 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 well, it had two, it had two aspects of it. Um, one was it was enormously profitable. It also was being essentially used as – barter, that is, um, opium has a relatively long life. It was one of those trade commodities where you could, so you use it essentially as Almost currency. Almost as a currency. Exactly. So, so the Americans got involved in that, not in the scale that the British East India Company and then later on British merchants after the East India Company lost its monopoly. Um, but, um, but Americans were involved in this in a very substantial way. And the fact that it wasn't illegal here yeah. doesn't mean that they didn't that they were, didn't know they were breaking the law there, and they also didn't. Everybody understood what this was about. What was the form of the opium then? What did it look like? Was it well? It's it's called um, uh, foreign mud in China, and it's you know this solid uh, dark masses. They were these balls that were sort of um, assembled, and then you'd uh, pick off pieces of it. But the but this this using pipes to smoke it was um, you know moved it from being essentially something that was still addictive but in a milder way to having this sort of direct hit um, kind of uh, consumption of it this these great highs now one of the things to remember about it is this is not you know just people who's personal circumstances, financial circumstances are bleak and they turn to this. This is across society in China. So not just desperate folks. Yeah, yeah. This is from top to bottom, top to bottom. within it. And um, and the and the estimates uh, China is such a big country with such a big population, there's staggering numbers of people both using drugs, using opium, but also becoming uh, um, addicted to it. It's the great this great national problem in China, which is really not substantially resolved until the um, communist revolution of the 20th century. Any evidence that the people on the ships dipped into the stash? Was there ever, ever a problem with that? I, I, 
I, the money is so good that I suspect that they, but but I, it's hard for me to believe that wherever sailors congregated on shore, there were um, there was plenty of use of drugs there too, and 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 here in America at the same time that we're not we're not um, immune from this, but here they're using uh, opium as in sort of pill form as medicine, um, and also laudanum, which is um, um, opium broken down in alcohol as uh, taking that as sort of a drink. Have we covered opium completely? What am I missing? I don't want to miss out. Anything. No, that one of the things. One of the things is that the the really important thing to think about is this: the in modern day China, they look at this is in the 19th century. People from outside came to China when China was weak and kind of inflicted all this damage on it. That that's really the important part of the story. That we we may be embarrassed that first families of New England shipping families were involved in this illicit business. In China, this is seen as being the outside world came and damaged and caused all this destruction um, um, to our country, and and in fact um, forced us to accept it at a point of gun. That is that the. The opium wars were fought so that China would have to both open itself up to foreign commerce, and part of that foreign commerce was opium trade. We're talking about the China trade, but now we're kind of getting into some of the, the side effects of the China trade. A couple more things to go. should take about 15 minutes. And one of the side effects of the China trade was some circumstances that ended in the Chinese Exclusion Act. But can you... Can you uh, talk about all the situations that led up to the Chinese Exclusion Act? Sure. The The first time lots of people came from China to the United States was at the time of the gold rush at the end of the 1840s when after the Mexican War, the United States took over California and the Southwest. And the gold rush meant that there was need for lots of workers um, 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 and mining. So tens of thousands of um, Chinese came, um, workers came to the United States, uh, mostly through Hong Kong, but from out into the Chinese countryside. And um, they're, they're, they were met by a considerable hostility. They were competing for jobs and for finding gold in California. So um, California was um, the place where most Chinese immigrants came to. Now, a lot of these people were coming with the idea that they'd work and then go home, but I think there were a fair number of people who came essentially to stay, but met with a, a great deal of hostility. And this hostility towards um, Chinese immigrants sort of spread through the United States as Chinese immigrants came to the United States. And this culminated in the 1880s. This is about 30 or 40 years um, into this story when there are uh, hundreds of thousands of Chinese have come to the United States. The China, uh, 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 workforce of Chinese um, um, built the part of the transcontinental railroad coming from California East, the Central Pacific Railroad. That's essentially the story of Chinese workers um, there. And in all of the hard work, in fact, the term used um, for people, not just from China, but from uh, workers from the East, from India as well, are, is coolie. And coolie, I think, is uh, a term that the Chinese characters mean sort of like terrible work or something and that. Uh, really? Yeah, that 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 it is translated. Yeah, yeah. That that this one is who does terrible. Yeah, jobs. yeah, that's right. Because this is what it really was. And and often people often people this isn't slavery, but these are often people like in the West Indies, the uh, Chinese contract workers when slavery ended in the West Indies, ended in Cuba. Um, uh, Chinese contract workers came to do that plantation work that essentially no one had been prepared to do. And so they, they're everywhere in the world. Millions of Chinese workers leave China. And part of this foreign influence means China opens up both to the Western intervention in China and Chinese in large numbers for the first time can leave their closed off country and go live and work elsewhere. This number that comes to the United States is large, uh, is large, and by the 1880s, 
um, first California and the and the tries to stop immigration by state law, and those laws are, are pushed back by against by the federal government and by the Supreme Court, and then um, the um, federal government um, um, uh, passes the most famous of these is the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, and this is essentially. Um, uh, 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 a federal law, um, which means that people by race are being excluded from um, coming to the United States. So if you think of all the immigrants that came in the 19th century, Chinese workers are being picked out to be excluded. And um, it's, uh, it really, it, it, it continues on this exclusion. There are people in the United States uh, who have been here already coming to work and then going home. But um, uh, there are Chinatowns that essentially ghettos in most big American cities. Um, um, but um, the uh, exclusion of Chinese from the United States doesn't end until during the Second World War right. where we're allies with them. And then you kind of can't have a law right. like that anymore. But the great mass of people of, Ch of Chinese descent here in the United States are in fact relatively recent immigrants. Didn't they build the railroad, the western half of the railroad? Yes, that's the Central Pacific Railroad. It's coming from California and meets the Union Pacific Railroad coming west, um, and they meet in Utah. Because that's how I, I sort of picture them working on the railroad. Yes, that's right. But all those sort of, the, and in and, and, and the west, of course, the railroad is um, digging tunnels and uh, across the uh, Sierra Nevada Mount. I mean, these this incredible work that's um, undertaken um, and very dangerous. Also, in I believe in Seattle, if you go there, are tours that include tunnels that they made the Chinese live in. They were underground. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, uh, uh, I mean, poor people were lived under very tough circumstances in 19th century American cities, but no group of people lived the way. Um, uh, uh, Chinese immigrants were being uh, treated. This is, it you know, in a in a country that has this terrible history with slavery, that's something um, that we have to address. But I think people have no memory or knowledge of how Chinese the Chinese Americans were treated simply because of their race. And the final thing is as a result of. The opium trade. There, there was a disruption late, later on in China that you wanted uh, to the, cover. Yes, the 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 ch the opium trade just continued to expand over the course of the 19th century. It grew gigantic. Now later on, there's no longer import of opium. The, there's this great opium production in southern China um, um, uh, that across the border into the neighboring country still exists today. The so-called Golden Triangle, but. Um, um, this is so – it's one of the reasons, not alone, but one of the reasons that leads to these enormous uprisings in China, this attempt to overthrow uh, 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 corrupt government removed um, from uh, um, any kind of um, um, uh, um, action on behalf of the enormous population. The most famous of um, uh, these uprisings called the Taiping Rebellion which is considered to be the bloodiest war of and revolution and war of the 19th century, maybe of all history. I mean, tens of millions of people at least dead. Um, you know, we think of the American Civil War um, causing about 750,000 deaths. Um, um, uh, but you think of a, a, a war that goes on for 14 or 15 years and causes tens of millions of deaths. And that's, that's not caused by opium alone, but it gets very complicated because the Taiping rebels are anti-opium. That's one of the things they're going to they're gonna stamp out. So after fighting wars with the government of China to force opium trade, the um, uh, Western nations, including in a minor way the United States, find themselves in the peculiar position of aiding in the suppression of this anti-opium rebellion, anti-anti um, 
anti-opium was only one part so of the Taipei. Opium was associated with the, the ruling class and the corruption. Well, it's, it's the, this big business enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the 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 government, which is trying to keep it out, now is you know in this yep. peculiar thing. But this disruption of foreign influence, it changes everything, and the introduction of technology. Uh, modern weapons, railroads, all this disruption going on in the 19th century. And the China we look at today is very much the product of all this disruptive influence of the 19th century. So our connection is interesting and important for business and important for our economy here, but the consequences at the other end of the world were not necessarily happy ones. Well, another layer in the the tapestry that is uh, the history of Boston. Peter Drummy, thank you so much. And uh, tell the folks a, a little bit about the, you know, for a minute or so, Massachusetts Historical Society and what they can see over there and how to get there. Sure. Stuff. The Massachusetts Historical Society is a ni- private nonprofit organization. We were founded. We were founded right at the time of these first China trade voyages. In fact, we have the logbooks of the ship Columbia that opened this trade and metal struck to celebrate the voyage. So we have things that were collected contemporaneously. We were founded in 1791, so the Columbia was away on its second voyage around the world when the Historical Society was founded. So we've collected materials about the China trade from the beginning. Um, We were, um, there was a China trade museum in Milton. It still exists as the Robert Forbes um, um, Robert Bennett Forbes House in Milton, but um, its collections its collections about the house remain there, and it's a wonderful place to visit, but its artifacts went to the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, which has amazing materials about the China trade and about the materials coming back from China, porcelain especially, but the records of companies and ship's logs and letters written by Westerners from here in China we have in our collection. But we collect personal papers, the papers of individuals and families, and then a whole range of things to support those. Right now, we have an exhibition you can come in to see six days a week, um, Monday through Saturday, on um, um, it. next March will be the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre. So we've put out materials that show how ordinary people saw this really important historical event. Love it when you come. You're great, great, great. Thank you, Peter Drummy. It's WBZ. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.